You're listening to All Marine Radio, broadcasting from Costa Mesa, California, on the All Warrior Radio Network. salt in the wound or anything like that, but yeah, welcome to my house, the house of Aloha, (laughs) I'm just kidding, it's not really Aloha, I guess it is, right, yeah, let me tell you man, the last 24 hours of my life, crazy, yeah, so I do yesterday, so I, I, I don't change my body clock, right, when I come here, because I'm only going to be here for three days, so I just stay in California time, so that means, like last night I went to bed at 9 o'clock, um, 8.30 maybe, I got up at 3.30 in the morning, which would have been 6.30 California time, so normal for me, around there, between 6 and 6.30. Sometimes earlier, depending on if I wake up. So I do that. And um, yeah. So I, um, I get up. I make sure this goes off the way it's supposed to go off, right? 
the show, and it did, which made me happy. So then I um, I started working on the presentation, and I redid the presentation a little bit. Yeah, I kind of did, like, more bottom line up front. <clears throat> All right. This is the problem. This is where we're at. This is what you can do about it. <laughs> Rest of the presentation. So... I, and I liked it. I liked the way it did. So I'll do it again like that tomorrow. So then I, um, I finished getting ready. I went over to the base chapel, set everything up, and then so did the presentation. And it's always cool when you meet people, you know, who later come up to you and say, you know, I wasn't really, I was kind of pissed I had to come to this. And, uh, turns out it's like one of the best classes I've ever seen in my life and um, so it's just interesting another woman there um, her husband's a marine she goes I'm telling my husband how fantastic this is and he's at Okinawa right now and he's saying well why the hell have I even have I not seen it and I said yeah tell me he could talk to his command about that um, and she said was well, a way that he can't I said yeah get me an email and I'll let him watch. And so, um, so it's just very cool. I left there, came running back here, hopped on a zoom call with, uh, the graduate group from post-traumatic winning. And it now into includes two groups of people. And so it was awesome. And last night might be one of the best, uh, zoom things we've ever done and we were talking about the breath the breath and so what is that well it is my theory right now um, that behavioral change starts with the ability to take a breath And um, so if you want to be a part of the experiment, then by all means, here's what you have to do. When you bump into anything you struggle with, take a breath. And I promise you, by the time you get the breath not even fully into your lungs, your brain will already be turning on what you're supposed to do. It's amazing. So to me, what if, what if the one skill you have to, um, you have to master is that breath. And if you can master that breath, you can, it's then a question of, you know, you, you, I think done the hardest thing, which is stop the reaction and turn it over to your brain to do the right thing. Stopping that reaction, though, is 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 key, is 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 critical. So, anyway, so that's if you wanna if you wanna test that out, let me know what you think. But so we were talking about that, and then just all this spontaneous, good, incredibly good stuff started to happen in that group, and it just kept going and going and going. And so it's really amazing um, with these groups, um, and that they. The people are so good. 
Um, they're so interested. They're so gentle with each other and supportive of each other. And then they're so, now they're so honest because they know each other. Yeah. So it's crazy. It's, 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 it's crazy, crazy, crazy on top of crazy. So, um, so I did that. And then I went to a reception, uh, uh, that's hosted by, uh, the Pacific Air Force. And it's in this courtyard that's, and, uh, on the sides of the walls of this courtyard of this old barracks, it's World War II barracks. Uh, you can see the pock marks from the Japanese, you know, zero, their cannons uh, that are, you know, that, uh, you know, on the walls, uh, the flag that flew at Hickam Airfield uh, on December 7th, 1941 is in a case. So it's, it's a very cool thing. And then now I've been here like three times the last few months, so people know me. So I come walking in, they're like, hey, Mac, what's up? So, yeah, I have like Hawaiian friends. None of them are Hawaiian, but, um, but yeah, I have my own Hawaii friends. So uh talked to a bunch of people and uh, and just had a, had, a, had a great night, came back here. And, uh, and so I've had a couple conversations with people about, uh, about the post-medic winning seminar tonight. And they were like, oh, my God. I said, I know. How about that for crazy? And they were like, wow. So, uh, yeah. So, cool stuff. Cool stuff. Um, let's see. You're going to hear the second half of House Armed Service Committee testimony. So, I've shortened that. And there's some really, uh, continues to be really, really good stuff in it. And uh, and I wish I could remember the woman's name. She's a congressman. And she kind of walks the Navy down. Hey, you bought this DDG and it didn't really work out. You went big and thought the littoral combat ship and went down there. It didn't really work out. So there's some really interesting stuff uh, that you want to hear. Trust me. Uh, it's really good. Really good. I enjoyed, I thoroughly enjoyed listening uh, to all of it, and um, and so I think uh, I I I know you will. People that listened to it yesterday, you know, sent me notes and said, "Hey, Mac, that was really cool. Thank you." So what I try to do is edit the nonsensical stuff out, like, you know, why can't this guy play in the NFL and and some other stuff, um, and uh, you know, and what I believe to be gratuitous pol- political stuff. Um, so and then try to get to the core issues that surround the budget, uh, ship building, right? Marine Corps Force Design 2030s, things like that. So, um, so yeah, you'll hear more of that. And if 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 you missed yesterday's, uh, you should by all means check it out. So uh, good Tuesday morning to you. Uh, hope you had a good Monday night. It's the 22nd day of june the day before my mom's birthday yeah corporal punishment kathleen her birthday was uh june 23rd so happy birthday on wednesday to my mom um and uh and and good morning to you the uh united states marine corps band makes this morning official aloha (laughs) 
and this is dedicated to my Monday night seminar group. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't even know the right word to say. Um, post-traumatic winning graduate seminar last night. And it's made that way because of in a combination of intellect. Um, they know each other and they feel safe together. And it's just, in my opinion, very inspirational to sit and talk about the things, you know, that, uh, that they talk about. And it is a, uh, um, magical, I'm not, um, I don't know if that's the right word. Um, I think it is. And, uh, it's just amazing, uh, when you see people, um, that are doing those kind of things and, and talking about the, the, the issues that we tend to talk about, uh, which are trauma related and whatnot. And so, um, yeah, I can't, last night was, is still in my head and, uh, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. The courage that people have uh, when they, uh, when they do this kind of stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I don't normally kind of go off this much on individual things that I do, but, um, you know, we started out talking about the breath as a disconnector and trigger, um, for good behavior. And so, um, yeah, it was fantastic. So this is dedicated to a group of, I don't know, almost 25 people that uh, got together and uh, and talked about it last night. So um, I can never say thank you enough. Um, and I I think I benefit as much as anybody in that group from their wisdom, their courage, and their selflessness in terms of talking about themselves. And just awesome. Nice going. betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much 
<clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> that is always funny. I don't care. <clears throat> That's funny. But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. See, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult, challenging conditions and odds and win. You got to win. There's that win word again, right? You know, post-traumatic winning, I, that's an important word in, in, in the whole program. Not to coexist, not to be resilient and bounce back. To win, right? That you can win this fight. You can do that. Yeah, you can. I'm here to tell you. Um, anyway, time for us to check the weather. Yeah, this is. these are the temperatures. Let's see. About eight hours ago, for when you're listening to this. Okay? So, yeah, late here on a, a Monday night in the land of Aloha. That would be Hawaii. That's how the Hawaiians say it. All right. Currently, it is dark, cloudy, and 76 at Quantico. Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, clear, dark, and 79. 29 Palms, clear, dark, and 90. Camp Smith in Hawaii. I don't have Camp Pendleton on here now. <laughs> Doesn't make me happy. Camp, but it's pretty close to Costa Mesa, Newport Beach. Uh, Camp, Camp Smith in Hawaii. Clear, dark, and 75. Beautiful night here. Uh, in the Philippines. Yeah. The epicenter of the South China Sea. It is partly sunny in 88. Okinawa, partly sunny and 77. Darwin, sunny and 88. Yeah. Got that going for you. At the home of All Marine Radio, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach area of Southern California, it is dark, cloudy, and 64. And here at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, it is. No, it's not. It is partly cloudy in 79. High of 87 today. High of 87 on Tuesday. Wednesday, 88. Thursday, 88. Friday, 88. Not a whole lot changing here. Yeah. So uh, that is a look at your weather. We'll check um, the top headlines in Stars and Stripes. So we'll do that. Uh, we'll check top story in the Wall Street Journal then we'll do the same thing with USNI News Marine Corps Times and top five stories in early bird uh, let's see 
B-52 bombers traverse Arctic in a 27-hour Europe to Pacific mission. Whoa. The Air Force didn't say how many B-52s flew in the final 27-hour long mission over the over June 17, 18, which concluded when bombers reached their home station of Barksdale Air Force Base. Yeah, but they flew over the Arctic. Take that, Russia. The, um, there's been a third trial. 3M has been now partly liable for veterans' hearing loss in a third trial. You see those ads on TV all the time, right? Um, Pentagon has released guidelines of how troops can now sue the, Depart the Dep Dep Department of Defense for medical malpractice. And I'm not sure that's a good idea, right? Yeah, ask me why. N Military medicine, yeah, not so much. So, yeah, some of the horror stories you read about, it's no joke. Uh, Wall Street Journal, top story in the Wall Street Journal today is stocks rebound as the Dow gained more than 550 points. The other story, if you're a sports fan, is the Supreme Court rejects the NCAA limits on athlete benefits. So this is going to be really, really interesting to see how this shakes out because, you know, college athletics essentially takes free labor or somebody they're paying very little to and uh, negotiates huge television contracts. The high court rules that the NCAA violated antitrust laws by limiting schools from competing for player talent by offering better benefits. How about that? The Supreme Court unanimously ruled that strict NCAA limits on compensating college athletes violates U.S. antitrust laws a decision that could have broad ramifications for the future of college sports. Monday's ruling, written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, upheld lower court rulings that said the NCAA unlawfully limits schools from competing for player talent by offering better benefits to the detriment of college athletes. The 9-0 decision doesn't open up a world of direct unlimited pay for college athletes, an issue that wasn't before the court. Instead, the justices said the NCAA must allow colleges to recruit athletes by offering them additional compensation and benefits as long as they are tied to education. That means schools could offer compensation beyond the cost of attending college, such as scholarships for graduate or voca vo vocational schools, internships, computer equipment, and study abroad programs and limited cash awards for athletes, potentially nearly $6,000 for now, who do well in the classroom. I, but this is going bigger places. The ruling 
could have wide impact because it dealt a considerable legal blow to the NCAA's ability to use amateurism as a shield against efforts by athletes to share in the successes of multi-billion dollar industry built on their labor. The NCAA has for decades imposed narrow and tightly enforced standards restricting, restricting athlete compensation. So, uh, be interesting. Be interesting. A lot of money at stake. A lot of money at stake. So, that in the news. Um, USNI News, coming up next. And then the Marine Corps Times. And then the top five stories in Early Bird. So, we'll go through that. And then you'll hear a little uh, additional testimony. USNI News. Carrier Reagan Carrier Strike Group, now in the Indian Ocean, is heading for the Middle East. Here's an odd story. Headline, positions of two NATO warships were falsified near the Russian Black Sea naval base. The tracking data of two NATO warships was faked off the coast of a Russian-controlled naval base in the Black Sea, while the ships actually were moored 180 miles away, USNI News has learned. Like, who would do that, and why would they do it? I think we're about to find out. The United Kingdom Royal Navy's HMS Defender, a Type 45 Daring Class Destroyer, and the Royal Netherlands Navy's HNLMS Everston, a Dzeven Provincian class frigate, pulled into Odessa in the Ukraine on June 18th. The group had been monitored by Russian warships while exercising in the Black Sea, according to U.S. Navy photos dated June 17th. According to an automatic identification system, otherwise known as AIS, which transmits position detailed, to improve maritime safety, the pair left Odessa just before midnight on June 18th. The data showed that they sailed directly to Sevastopol, approaching within two nautical miles of the harbor entrance. The, strate- the strategic port houses the headquarters of the Russian Black Fleet. Despite the AIS track, there is clear evidence that the two warships did not leave Odessa. Live webcam feeds show that they did not leave Odessa. However, This was, anyway, the known situation in defense circles and local media. Anyone in Odessa can see that they did not leave. The webcams are broadcast live on YouTube by Odessa Line. Screenshots archived by third-party weather satellites. I'm sorry, third-party weather sites like Windy.com show the two warships present in Odessa overnight. Positioning two NATO warships at the entrance of the entrance at the entrance of a Russian naval base would be widely seen as a provocative action based on conflicting claims of sovereignty. So who would do such a thing? The motives behind the deception are unclear. The move raises questions about the efficacy of open source intelligence data such as AIS, which is becoming more common in both defense and by journalists. 
there is compelling evidence that the IS tracks were faked. You think? If the ships never left, then that would be what we call a firm grasp of the obvious. NATO representatives did not immediately respond to requests for comment. So, interesting little story. Interesting story. Um, all right, top stories in Marine Corps Times. UK's newest carrier with Marine Corps F-35s on board joins Islamic State fight stirs Russian interest. Um, Britain's newest aircraft carrier, the, the HMS Queen Elizabeth, with 10 Marine Corps F-35s on board, is helping to take on the lion's share of operations against the Islamic State group in Iraq. UK Naval Commander said, it has also picked the interest of Russian warplanes who try to keep tabs on the cutting-edge F-35 jet in a cat-and-mouse game with British and U.S. pilots. So kind of normal stuff, the cat-and-mouse games of intercepting and escorting and things like that. So, yeah, the Brits. Nice going. Uh, top stories in Early Bird. Betrayal and death. Former allies fear the fate of Afghans facing U.S. abandonment. Like the Afghans today, this is in Military Times, anti-communist Hmong allies of America faced a similar uncertain fate following the end of the Vietnam War. So the article talks about the U.S. pulling out and what will happen as people who don't get out don't get out. Um, next story from the Washington Post. A soldier who had allegedly killed a man who walked onto an army base. His family wants answers. Next story. Pentagon's extremism definition will have to find the line between free speech and unicohesion. Next headline, Taliban advance tests Afghan forces and morale as the United States leaves. That's in the Wall Street Journal. And in Army Times, these five Army posts have the highest sexual assault risk, according to a study. Fort Riley, Kansas, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Fort Collison, Colorado, follow Fort Hood, and Fort Bliss, both in Texas. So, that in the news. Uh, from overseas operations, the New York Times headline, Taliban enter key cities in Afghanistan's north after swift offensive. And so, that is a look at the news here on a Tuesday. And uh, now what you're about to hear, um, I, I, I have to say, I mean, I, I think you'll find it incredibly interesting. All right. So it's the Senate Armed Service, I'm sorry, the House Armed Service Committee uh, hearing last week on the Navy budget. So you have uh, Acting Secretary of the Navy, Harkin, I believe is his name, Admiral Gilday, the Chief of Naval Operations, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps General, David Berger. So I think you'll find it very interesting.
I mean, I I thoroughly enjoyed listening to it. It's interesting stuff. So I've edited out the things that I don't think you might find interesting. And uh, so interesting, interesting stuff. So with that said, we go to Capitol Hill where this hearing occurred last week. One more thing before we go. And uh, I told you the the woman you're about to hear, uh, one of the female members of Congress, uh, really impressed me. And so I I just want to give you a little background on who she is. All right. She is, her name is Elaine Luria. Okay. She is the vice chair of the United States House Committee on Armed Services. Now, listen to who she is. Born on August 15, 1975, an American politician, Navy veteran from the Commonwealth of Virginia. All right. Before running for Congress, Elaine Luria was a United States Navy officer for 20 years. She rose to the rank of commander and spent the majority of her career deployed on Navy ships. She defeated Republican incumbent Scott Taylor in 2018. She defeated him again in 2020 to win her second term. Yeah, how about that? Her congressional district includes most of Hampton Roads, including all of Virginia Beach, Williamsburg, and Paquazian, and portions of Norfolk and Hampton. So, listen to this. She's born in Birmingham, Alabama. She went to the United States Naval Academy, where she graduated in 1997 with a Bachelor of Science and a double major in Physics and History and a minor in French. What? Yeah, double major major in physics and history, and a minor in French. In 2000, Luria attended the United States Nuclear Power School. Yeah, that's no joke. They don't send stupid people to that. While serving in the Navy aboard the flagship USS Blue Ridge, she earned a master's degree, a master's of science degree in engineering management from Old Dominion University. Luria served as a Navy officer for 20 years, operating nuclear reactors as an engineer, where she rose to the rank of commander. She was the first female American sailor to spend her entire career on combat ships. She commanded Assault Craft II, a combat-ready unit of 400 sailors, from 2014 until her retirement in 2017. As of 2019, Luria's service was the longest active duty tenure of any current member of the House Democratic Caucus. How about that? (laughs) And you're going to hear her, okay? You were going to hear her. And I told you, I heard her and I remember, and I was like, who is this? She's like clicking it down the history of the Navy on the CNO and asking some pointed questions. 
So anyway, I thought you should know that that's who you're going to hear. Elaine Luria. Yeah. Go Navy. So without further ado, I think she's second or third up in this line. Um, there's a former Marine by the name of Gallagher. He's first. He's from Wisconsin. And uh, I don't know. She might be third or fourth. But very impressive. Very impressive. So with that said, boom. There you have it. Thank you. Mr. Gallagher is recognized for five minutes. Thank you. Uh, Commandant Berger, do you share the concerns uh, expressed by Admiral Davidson about a potential PRC action against Taiwan within the next six years? I do, sir. Uh, CNO, same question to you. Yes, sir. I think this gets to the fundamental dilemma that you're hearing expressed on both sides with regards to the overall budget. We seem to be punting our a larger Navy into the future on a 2045 timeline when really we need to be planning around a 2025 timeline and we need to be resourcing it uh, accordingly and that's to the extent you're hearing frustration i think that is a frustration or at least i don't speak for other members that's a frustration and sense of urgency i feel there may be small ways we can start to get at it as we haggle over the bigger budgetary picture commandant for example last year this committee supported at least part of your request for ground-based anti-ship missiles and long-range fires in a bipartisan manner we endorsed your overall force design initiatives Regrettably, uh, the appropriators cut your funding for GBASM and zeroed out long-range fires. Can you briefly describe the impact of that cut and the importance of those programs? It reduced what we'll have in the field in, 23, in uh, 2023. It'll delay the fielding of the capability. It's a proven technology. Uh, it set us back in time, which equals, for a combatant commander, equals risk. And then a bit more of a, a niche program, you also identified artificial intelligence-enabled force protection as a capability for prioritized investment in your most recent force design guidance, yet it's not resourced in the FY22 budget submission. This was uh, funded and developed by the Small Business Innovation Research Program, which is highly competitive, subject to multi-phase competition, very difficult to get to phase three. Uh, in light of that, that it's not in the budget, how does the Marine Corps plan to leverage this SIBR investment and resource and deploy this AI-enabled force protection capability? At our bases and stations, uh, in my opinion, and I'm very familiar with the technology, it can actually reduce the number of military police security, civilian security that we hire right now. It's also um, the kind of technology that will allow you to use it into the future. It won't be obsolete two, three years from now. It's baked into it is the ability to, to update the software inside it. For perimeter security, for monitoring the security of our installations, I think it'll be a, a helpful capability. And I think this year we'll make, a, we'll make a decision on procurement and where to field it, because we've already used it at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, and it's proven its effectiveness. That's good to hear. And I hope uh, members of the committee will work to give you the resources you need there. Uh, Admiral Gilday, uh, we, uh, I think we all agree we want the Constellation class frigate uh, to be a success. We want it on time, on budget. Uh, sort of the logic of, of that was it was a proven design. I think that's what put Fincantaria in, in an advantageous position. I understand the need for combat systems changes uh, on that ship, but Will you commit to, you know, with the, with the lessons of the LCS in mind, commit to minimizing changes to existing hull and machinery? I mean, why make any, HM, any changes in light of just the urgency of fielding this platform on time and on budget? 
Sir, I, I agree with you. And when I went up to the shipyard to visit, that's one of the things I committed to, that we would minimize any perturbations. We've got to lock down what we want to put in that ship and go after it instead of, as, as, you, as you allude to, uh, kind of drag it out over time and uh, add uncertainty and risk to the, to the build. And I, I get that the, um, just to sort of step back here and what time I have uh, remaining, I, I get that a lot of the decisions that need to be made are, are in some ways even above your pay grade. In other words, any trade-off between the services would have to be reconciled by the Secretary of Defense and, and the President for the budget. Um, you know, their overall trade-off between non-defense discretionary spending versus defense spending is certainly something that only the White House can resolve. But given that the commitment to a 355 ship navy is is a, a statutory commitment i mean what what top line would you need in order to advance towards that objective more expeditiously yes sir the uh the shipbuilding plan that we submitted last year uh, was predicated on 4.1 percent growth to get us to 355 in 10 years and so that was to to mr courtney's point a clear set of headlights not only for the congress but for, for, for industry when EB puts millions of dollars into infrastructure because they're counting on building that Columbia for the next 15 years, that's the kind of predictability and uh, uh, predictability that, that we really need. Well, I support the 10-year the time horizon as unrealistic as some may suggest. And just in light of these warnings about something happening within the next five or six years, I think we all need to act with a greater sense of urgency. Thank you, gentlemen. Time has expired. Uh, Mr. Bacon is recognized for five. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Thanks for your leadership. I agree with the ranking member, Mike Rogers, and Senator Inhofe. Considering the president's defense budget request, the budget falls short of providing the resources, equipment, and training that our service members require to, con to confront threats like China. And we've heard today that China is our pacing threat. We've heard that China has the largest Navy in the world. We've heard today that our Navy's buying power is less than it was in 2010. These are compelling words. Yet, while the non-defense budget from this administration is increasing by 16%, the defense budget is being cut when inflation is factored in. The Navy's shipbuilding budget is being cut by 3%. The Navy's aviation budget is being cut by 15%. That's reality. Those are, those are the actions by the administration, and they don't match the words. That's my, really my main point here. The, the actions are not matching the words from the administration. It's cognitive dissonance personified. And we're not fooled by some good-sounding words from the administration that China is the pacing threat, yet the defense budget is being cut at the same time. So let's just want to make those opening comments. Uh, my first question is to Admiral uh, Gilday and General Bergner. I've been a leading proponent of compelling the Department of Defense to establish not only an EMS strategy, but an implementation plan as well. It's a priority. Uh, we have fallen behind in this area in the electronic magnetic spectrum. Have the Navy and Marine Corps published an electronic magnetic uh, spectrum warfare strategy? And if not, when could we see it? Thank you. Sir, I'll have to get back to you on that specific strategy. I know that we have uh, detailed concepts of operation in terms of how we use the systems tactically, particularly in the growler, and how we combine those with other joint assets in order, in order to increase our uh, effectiveness out there uh, in the Western Pacific. But I'll get back to you on the, on the strategy piece, sir. I would just point out, uh, after serving 30 years and being an electronic warfare guy myself, uh, the Navy has led the way in this since the 1990s, so we appreciate it. But we do need a good strategy, and we need a joint 
staff strategy that guides it. Chairman Berger. I understand the question, and I agree with the priority on it. It's a, an area of warfare, especially vis-a-vis -vis Russia or PLAN, that we've got to maintain an advantage in. Uh, I'll also um, ask you if I can check. I don't know of a written Marine Corps strategy that we've published in the past tw 24 months. It may exist, but not that I'm familiar with. Thank you. I, I just, I've been studying this for a while. We fell behind in the 90s. We, did, we didn't have the right leadership at DOD and the Joint Staff on electronic warfare, electronic magnetic spectrum operations, as it is called now. And we need to play catch up. And it starts at the DOD and Joint Staff level, but we surely need the services to uh, be a strong part of that. Secretary Harker, do you support the funding of the Columbia-class submarine out of the National Sea-Based Deterrence Fund? Sir, that's one that uh, you've given us the authority to do that, and then the appropriators appropriated into SCN, so we go ahead and we transfer the money from SCN into the National Sea-Based Deterrence Fund. And so that's a process that we currently do in order to comply with the law. Are you, are you confident that we're going to be fielding the Columbia class on time with, with our current budget? And is, are things going as you, as you would like? Yes, sir. We are moving forward with Columbia. It's our number one priority. Uh, we have put additional funds into this year's budget for risk reduction on Columbia, and so that was uh, one of the areas where we invested funds, and that is our number one priority, and it will remain that way. Question for Admiral Gilding. The Navy didn't request funding for continued procurement of the FA-18 Super Hornet, and it has not increased the buy for the F-35. Are we putting ourselves at risk here with our tactical fighter inventory? Sir, right now we're, uh, we're short 42 fighters. We believe the path that we're on gets us, uh, resolves that by 2025. Uh, so each year as we continue to upgrade our, our existing F-18 Super Hornets to Block 2s to Block 3s and then procure uh, F-35s that pays from 15 to 20 a year, uh, we'll get to where we need to be with about five to six wings by 2025 that have that fourth, fifth gen integration. Thank you. And just a closing request for... Mr. Harker, I sent you a letter uh, last month. We had a World War II hero, uh, Petty Officer Charles French, an African-American sailor. Uh, he was in a ship that was sunk off the Solomon Islands in 1942. He rescued uh, 15 sailors from capture and probable being killed by the Japanese at the time. And he didn't get an award. Uh, this would mean something for Omaha. He's a favorite son of Omaha and his family. If you would look at that, I would be grateful. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Be glad to look at it. Gentlemen's time has expired. The um, gentlelady from Virginia, Ms. Luria, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you. And Admiral Gilday, um, in the interest of time, I'm going to ask some yes, no, or short answer questions. And you've already had the opportunity um, several times during today's hearing to state that you agree with Admiral Davidson and Admiral Aquilino's comments about the urgency of a potential um, attack uh, by the Chinese on Taiwan. I wanted to point out in your statement um, you write that the Navy has studied, identified, and prioritized the future capabilities we need to execute our evolving warfighting concepts and maintain a credible deterrent with respect to the PRC. So what year do you expect um, to have the majority of those capabilities available, operating, and deployed to counter that threat? I think hypersonics offensively, by initially by 2025, Th that program itself is a is is uh, so hypersonics. That's, you're talking about one thing. So I mean, the, this future fleet that you're envisioning by 2025, you think that we're going to have 
all of those capabilities? No, no, okay. no, no, I don't, ma'am. Um, uh, okay. uh, so. so specifically, I mean, there are, there are a number of different capabilities we're talking about, including uh, including the networks we need to, to fight so on. further uh, out, like yeah. not within the next not, five not, to six not by, years not in by that 20, time frame? The majority of those systems, not by 2025. Okay, so and if the PACOM commanders are correct, and I believe them to be, and I think in your professional opinion as a service warfare officer, you also um, you know believe that it's not prudent to decommission 15 ships in the next year when China could invade Taiwan in the very near term. Um, so I understand you were given a pretty shitty top line by the administration um, and specifically the, the Pentagon. So you didn't have a lot of good choices, um, but you did have choices. And so I was looking at the words you used and you, you said that this budget is going to divest to invest. So that's your strategy you're using. And I looked back over the last 20 years of budgets and saw that that was a fami very familiar term, especially in the 2004 budget, um, where the Navy used that same divest to invest strategy um, in its 24, 21st century Sea Power 21. So that was defined by Sea Shield, Sea Strike, and Sea Basing, all tied together by this network called ForceNet. Um, and so if we fast forward to today and we look at that future strategy at the time, it was based on DDG-1000, LCS, and ForceNet. So with the DDG-1000, just a quick question, how many DDG-1000s at that point in time do we intend to build? Um, Ma'am, I'd have to get back to you in the exact number. I know so it's fluctuated over time. Around but 30. Many, many. Yes, yes, about 30. and we have built three. Right. Um, what was the planned procurement totals for the LCS? I don't know Just off. Higher than what we built, obviously, with these modular capabilities that we right. haven't developed. And what is the current status of ForceNet? Is that a mature system that we're operating today? No. Okay. Because um, I'm thinking project overmatch as I'm right. looking at ForceNet right. going back. Right. Um, so I think that we're you know, in a similar crossroads, the divest to invest um, strategy. And you know, as I've said many times, as many of my colleagues have echoed today, you know, we, we're looking at this Battle Force 2045, a plan that's far off, a 355 ship goal that we're never going to get to when we decommission more ships every year than we actually build. And it causes a great concern because I think there's an urgency. I mean, what are we going to do in 2025 to counter this threat? And you know, you very correctly um, stated, you know, spent a lot of time in your statement talking about how the United States is a maritime nation um, and how that's been important since the founding of this nation. And the Navy has allowed us to maintain our role on the global stage as a global power to maintain free trade. Um, and some very good comments in there, but I don't see what the Navy is doing today to accomplish that when we're continuing to shrink and we're continuing to divest and invest with strategies and capabilities that are just a hope for the future. Um, you know, and the obvious thing is that, you know, we're looking to develop a large unmanned surface vessel, which theoretically would have 16 VLS cells. We're going to decommission seven cruisers that each have two VLS launchers with 122 cells each. You know, when you're looking at that problem writ large, you know, we are reducing our capability to counter the threat that we have today. Um, and so, you know, I, I would just close by saying that, you know, I, I feel this budget is, you know, focused on a future hope for technology that we will have in order to counter a threat that might happen way out in the future. And I think that many of us in this room here and during this hearing have reflected on the fact that we need that capability today. The one thing we can build with reliability on schedule is the DDG. And we cut one this year and we'd even plan to potentially build three. Um, and then, you know, I think that the, what I would consider a modest current investment in modernizing the cruisers to operate for several more years with their 
sizable capability um, is something that uh, we should maintain. So, you know, I think that we're creating a gap, and I am really concerned that the Chinese will actually find a way to exploit that gap. And so I'll yield back my remaining time. The gentlewoman um, yields back. I uh, recommend everyone read the Texas National Security Review uh, commentary that Ms. Luria presented yesterday. It was um, very impressive. Uh, we are now um, going to recognize the gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Banks, for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Admiral Gilday, I was glad to hear Congressman Lamborn ask you about your decision to include Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist in your recommended reading list. I was also relieved uh, to hear you say that you disagree with Kendi and you do not support racial discrimination. That being said, the Navy recently completed a one-day stand-down to remove extremism from the ranks. The Chief of Naval Personnel explained, quote, we will not tolerate extremist ideologies that go against our oath to the Constitution. In my view, Kendi has espoused extremist beliefs that clearly violate the oath to the Constitution that I took when I served in the Navy. Ibram Kendi, by the way, labeled Amy Coney Barrett a, quote, white colonizer, and criticized her for, quote, cutting the biological parents of these children out, end quote, because she adopted two children from Haiti. Yes or no, Admiral, do you personally consider opposition to interracial adoption an extremist belief? I just ask you, do you consider opposition to interracial adoption an extremist belief? It's a simple question. Okay. Kendi's book states that, Admiral, uh, Kendi's book states that capitalism is essentially racist. Admiral, your microphone isn't on, I believe. Thank you. Thank you. Kendi's book states that capitalism is essentially racist. And Kendi is clear that racism must be eliminated. So yes or no? Do you personally consider advocating for the destruction of American capitalism to be extremist? Here's what I know, Congressman. So yes There's or no racism question, Admiral. in the United States Navy. Admiral, you I recommended every sailor in the United States Navy read this book. So yes or no question. I'm not forcing anybody to read the book. It's on a recommended reading list. Admiral, did you read the book? I did. Okay. In college, Kendi stated that white people are a different breed of humans and are responsible for the AIDS virus. Yes or no, do you personally consider the conspiracy that white people started AIDS to be an extremist belief? Sir, I'd have to understand the context. That is a simple question. Made. I'm not going to I'm not going to Admiral, here. this is a book I'm that you recommended here, sir, every defend, sailor in the United States Navy cherry read. picked quotes from somebody's book. I'm not going to do that. This is a bigger issue than Kendi's book. What this is really about is trying to paint the United States military. And in this case, the United States Navy is weak, is woke. And we've had sailors that spent 341 days at sea last year with minimal port visits, the longest deployments we've Admiral, had. Admiral, I've, I've met War. you. I respect we are you. Not weak. I remain astonished. We are strong and our parents Admiral, I remain astonished that you put this book on a reading list and recommended that every sailor in the United States Navy read it. I'm also surprised that you said you, you read it. But I'm glad you brought up those points. You, sir? The Department of Defense, list. Admiral, the Department of Defense undertook the stand down because they understand that extremism detracts from military readiness. So if sailors accept Kendi's argument that America and the United States Navy 
are fundamentally racist, as you've encouraged them to do, do you expect that to increase or decrease morale and cohesion or even recruiting into the United States Navy? I do know this. Our strength is in our diversity, and our sailors understand that. Race is a very, racism in the United States is a very complex issue. What we benefit from is an open discussion about those issues, that we don't try to ignore it or rewrite it, but we actually have a discussion about it. And there'll be various views, and I trust sailors will come and, and to an understanding of hopefully separating from fact from fiction, agreeing or disagreeing with Kendi in this case, and come to hopefully very useful conclusions about how we ought to treat each other in the United States. Admiral, why, why did you put this book on the reading list and recommend it to, that every single United States sailor read it? Because I think it's really important to consider a variety of views. Admiral, you said you read this book. What part of this book is redeeming and, and qualifies as something that, that every, I think every sailor in the United States needs critical about his own journey as an African-American in this country, what he's experienced. Let me ask you again, Admiral, do you expect that say, after sailors read this book that says that the United States Navy is racist, that we will increase or decrease morale, cohesion, and recruiting race into the United States Navy? I think we'll be a better Navy from having open, honest conversations about racism. Gentleman's time, time has expired. expired. The gentleman from Hawaii, Mr. Kahaley, is recognized for five minutes. Aloha and mahalo, Madam Chair, and aloha to our witnesses for your testimony today. My question, I have two questions I hope to get in, one for the uh, Marines, one for the Navy. My first one's for the Marines. General Berger, my question is related to your testimony on page eight regarding the F-35 and the current and future shortage of Marine and Navy pilots and maintainers. Specifically, you're concerned that if we do not remedy these shortfalls, um, that we're going to have a problem, that we're going to have a superior fifth-generation aircraft that the American people have purchased, critical to our uh, agility and tactical supremacy of the MAGTAF and the future expeditionary missions of the Marine Corps without any pilots to fly them. So my question is, uh, what has the Marines done since last year's budget request and this year's budget request to conduct a reassessment of its aviation plan, specifically the F-35 capacity requirements of the future force in regards to staffing, recruiting, training, retention of that aviator force based on the approximately 420 F-35s the service intends to, to buy it at full build-out? Sir, we conducted a, uh, we actually, we contracted an external study to look at what we thought our requirements were capacity-wise, which is the heart of your question. Is it 420-some or what is it? The second part of that, uh, which you highlighted, is our ability to recruit, retain, train the people who can maintain and fly those aircraft. On the first, the capacity part. Uh, I think clear from the capacity part, first, the F-35 is a very capable aircraft and meets what we need it to do. The number of aircraft have to, has to match what the Navy and Marine Corps team is going to need to do in the future. My expectation is, my belief is, it'll, it won't be the entire program or record. I don't know how many less until we do more wargaming, more experimenting, more learning, but it'll be less than the program or record. On the pilot and maintainer aspect, there were technical problems with trainer aircraft and, and some other issues that caused a backlog of training pilots at Pensacola. That's largely been rectified, but there is clearly a backlog, a gap now that we must make up. What we can't do is accelerate and get somewhere fast in the wrong way. 
We also have to retain the ones that we have trained already. Here, competition is fierce, as, as you're well aware. Some from the airline industry, but some from other places that make it a real challenge for the services to hold on to the captain, the major that has a couple deployments under their belt, a lot of time away from family, and we need them to stay in. We, we have to work harder there. We have to, on retention side, we have to approach it in a different manner. All right, thank you, sir. Um, question for Admiral Gilday in regards to uh, Barster and uh, the critical um, undersea training ranges, specifically the one exists in Hawaii at the Pacific Missile uh, Range Facility out at Barking Sands. Um, I'll, I'll cut right to the chase. The president's budget provided only uh, $33.56 million to commence fully restoring those range capabilities. I don't believe that funding is sufficient to restore full capability to our ranges. The um, Barking Sands Tactical Underwater Range is um, past its design life and needs to be replaced. Its sensors are inoperable, uh, aging infrastructure resulting in reduced tracking coverage. Would you support replacing Barsters sooner and maybe talk about how an accelerated timeline would actually save money by allowing more efficient ordering of materials and potential savings in level of effort costs? Sir, I agree with you on the value of the range. Um, I owe you more details with respect to the phasing uh, and the money that we're putting against it. And uh, if it's okay, I'd like to get back, back to you with those details, including what acceleration might look like. Okay, you bet. Thank you, and I'll yield my time. Mahalo. Thank you. I will point out to members we have a hard stop at 2 o'clock. I think we're going to get there. Uh, we're making good progress. So, Mr. Franklin, uh, you are recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Admiral, early in the testimony today, uh, you painted a pretty stark picture of the threat we're facing from China, the things we need to do to get there. In your exchange with Ranking Member Rogers, it sounds like you know your assessment this current year budget doesn't cut it, and if extrapolated over a number of years, we'd have a hard time meeting that threat that we're facing. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I think this is a critical decade uh, for us to close gaps against China or in those areas where we have overmatch to create distance against China. Uh, and so I think that if we don't do it in this decade, I think we're fooling ourselves based on the momentum that it's going to happen in the future. That's why we need to get after it. And that's why we need to make these risk-informed decisions about modernization versus keeping uh, legacy uh, platforms. All right. Thanks. General, um, from the Marine Corps perspective, would you agree with that? Is this current year budget what you need? I know there are things on there that you want that we're not getting, but if this is, if this is extrapolated over a number of years, is that going to impact your ability to get to the core that you feel we need to face the China threat? If our budgets don't even match inflation, then the risk is high, correct, that at some point in the future we're overmatched. And that's, that's not what you want us to, that's not a place we want to be in. Very good. Uh, Admiral, specifically on P8s, uh, the Neptunes, the risk-informed uh, warfighting requirement was for 138. With the nine Congress added last year, we're at 128, yet there's no funding for this year. Has the assessment changed, or is this an example of we don't have enough money to do the things we think we need to do? Sir, I think the, the assessment has changed. We don't think we need as many as we initially uh, estimated. So we've had some good runtime in the P-8. They're a heavily sought-after aircraft. We're using, them, we're using them in the Eastern Med. We're using them in the High North. We're using them in the Pacific with a great degree of effectiveness. Uh, so we know how to use the platform better than we did initially when we first procured it. And so it's led to a decrease, slight decrease in overall numbers. Okay. Uh, General Berger had talked about uh, the pilot shortage and some of the things the Marines are looking at. But, Admiral, from, from your perspective, what are the things we're going to need to do? And as, as he had alluded to, and, and I've seen in my own experience, you, you, 
it's not just the, the pilot being produced right out of flight school. It's that second tour JO with a couple of cruises under their belt that strike league qualified. That doesn't happen overnight. We, we ran into that deficiency in the 90s with the T-notch, and, and by the late 90s, you just can't, you can't produce them at the snap of a finger. What are we doing to ensure we don't get there? I tell you, we're monitoring it really closely. And so in terms of incentives for those pilots, um, I'll just mention a couple. One of them is a career, uh, career intermission uh, break where they can go off and study if they need to, or they can, uh, they can take the time off to begin a family if they need to. Uh, we're trying to work with them on an individual basis so that we can retain them. At the same time, keep their skills uh, proficient. There are also, as you would, uh, as you would imagine, there are monetary uh, considerations there. We, we, do have, we do have some incentives that, uh, that we have offered pirates. We've created a separate now track for a professional flight instructor, uh, and so that avenue exists as well. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is, in a very in a competitive uh, environment with respect to the commercial aviation sector, uh, we are trying to remain competitive to ourselves, competitive ourselves in terms of making naval aviation the best place to work. I'm glad to hear that about the professional uh, instructor. That was an idea kicked around a long time ago, and I knew a lot of people that would have loved to have stayed in the cockpit, didn't have aspirations for stars right, like you all. Right. That's great to hear. Uh, and, and finally, Mr. Harger, this is really more just editorial for me. This is my first uh, pass through on the budget here. Uh, it's not what, uh, from a bipartisan response you're hearing here today, it's not enough. Um, you've got professionals who uh, we've entrusted to come to you with the advice of what, what's needed to get the job done. But they're also military, and at the end of the day, they're going to snap to and salute and get the job done with what you give them, and it's not enough. In peacetime, that's going to lead to low morale, uh, lack of readiness, and it's going to kill people. It's going to kill soldiers, sailors, and airmen. Uh, in a wartime footing, in the, in the future that we're headed towards, it's our very national security at risk. We've got to do better. This is not going to be an acceptable posture going forward. That's, now you'll back. Thank you. Mr. Panetta is recognized for five minutes. We'll recognize Mr. Carl for uh, five minutes, and we'll try to get Horsford back. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ranking Member Rogers, thank you, sir. I'd like to thank our witnesses for being here. Thank you for your service to this country. Uh, we're, we're, we're first in, in, in all categories, and we're there for a reason. I, I appreciate that. Mr. Hawker, you, you talked about our, our schools uh, down Mississippi. Uh, I would add those schools are in Alabama also. Also, I, I know you know that, but we take great pride in that. And I've spent the last 10 years helping recruit those young folks to get in those skills. And it's so important we keep these shipyards moving and keep them busy. It's easy to recruit when jobs are needed. It's hard to keep their attention when the jobs aren't needed. So I, I would appreciate your attention, attention towards that. But I, I appreciate you pointing that out because it made 10 years of my life worthwhile all of a sudden when I heard you say it. So thank you. Uh, like many of the members on the committee here, I'm deeply concerned about the, the Navy shipbuilding budget for the fiscal year 2022. Uh, and I know I'm going to repeat a lot of this, Admiral. <laughs> uh, specifically, I, I would like to highlight uh, something from the Navy's report to Congress on the annual long-range plan for construction of Navy vessels that was published in December. The report uh, stated shipbuilding and supporting uh, vendors' base um, constitu uh, constitutes a national security and we must steadily support and grow to maintain these, this skillful workforce, basically what we were talking about with the schools. This budget doesn't re 
request does not come close to supporting our institute, our industry base. I'm sorry, I'm stumbling here. I just ran back over from the other building. This is of particular concern to me on the Gulf Coast, and it's playing a role for the Navy. Also in the December report, it emphasizes the threat posed by the ever-growing Chinese Navy. So my question to you, Admiral, is, is very simple. The December report called for 12 ships in 2022. However, this budget requires uh, request calls for only eight ships, of which four are warships. This is only ser serves harm to the institutional base, but also falls, uh, fails to maintain the growth and the need for the 10 ships per year to reach the 355. What are the changes? Why, why, why did we go from, from one number to the other here within just a few months? You're drifting a little way away from the microphone there, Admiral. Sorry, we're losing you a little bit. Go ahead. Actually, I don't think your microphone's on. So did you hear my first comment? Uh, I uh, did. Okay. Uh, the, the, the current uh, direction we have is eight ships in this, uh, in this plan. And so four of them are combatants and four are support ships. But those support ships are ships that we can't wait on any longer. Uh, and so the, the two uh, salvage ships, as an example, which some refer to as tugboats, uh, those are desperately needed in combat. I was on a combat damaged ship uh, in the Gulf War that actually was towed by one of those ships out of a minefield. So if we're not using a salvage ship to do that job, we're going to use another destroyer or we're going to use a littoral combat ship. So there is a valid requirement. Uh, as you can imagine, the oiler uh, that's, on the, that, that's, that's in the shipbuilding plan, we're short on those in order to, to fight as a distributed force. We need that sustainability to put, uh, to put gas in, in the ships out at sea. And lastly, the, the Tago ship is actually a ship with a very unique capability to do wide area search for submarines. If I look at Russia these days, uh, well, not so long ago, Russia only operated their submarines during a certain period of the year. Now, they're a pretty persistent threat against the east coast of the United States. And so those kinds of capabilities become more and more important. And as I said a few minutes ago, this is the decade that we have to move on capabilities like this and we can't wait. So there are trade-offs in that uh, among those eight ships that we're, uh, that we're requesting uh, from the Congress to fund in, in this particular budget. But I think that every single one of them serves a valid purpose. Okay, uh, one more quick question for you. The Navy is making strides to meet the demands on maintenance of the fleets. Given the large institution basis that we uh, based uh, decisions that we're having, I'm messing this all up and I do apologize. Can, has the Navy explored using more private companies versus using their own forces to repair and keep these ships maintained? Yes, sir, we absolutely are. We do all of our work on nuclear uh, vessels. I'm sorry, the gentleman's time has expired. Um, and I, I have a quick couple questions. Um, I will turn it back over. I think we have Mr. Horsford back, but we'll get that in a second. Um, a lot of talk about the top line, and, and I know there's a lot of pressure on you. I, I will say that this is my, I think, 25th budget. The entire time I've been here, there has never been a budget, there has never been a time when there was a single solitary person over at the Pentagon who didn't want more money. Okay. I, I cannot recall a time when everyone came in, we're good. In fact, we can give you back $10 billion and it's okay. There is literally no number that any president could put out there that the Pentagon wouldn't all hustle around and say, gosh, they're killing us. Okay. So we need to have that as a backdrop. It's also worth noting that last year's budget 
under President Trump was flatline. It was less of an increase than this was. Um, and you know, we didn't hear much of a hue and cry about that. So there are a number of factors in there. But the, the part that I think is important in terms of how we approach this comes from the gentleman's comment about the NNSA and how critically underfunded the NNSA is. I, I'm a little bitter about that because I've been, been fighting with them. A, they still have $8 billion in uncosted balances. I want to live in a life where I have a personal budget that has something called uncosted balances. Um, it's a pretty good life. The Pentagon has a ton of that. Okay. B, there was a little thing called the MOX facility down in South Carolina that over the course of a dozen years, maybe a little more, they wasted $7 billion on a project that everyone knew wasn't going anywhere. Now, part of that, I will grant you, was congressional pressure uh, from certain people trying to make sure they maintain that program. We also have, as was alluded to, the DDG-1000, the, the Zumwalt. That didn't work out particularly well. We, we have three of them. They wound up way over budget. They don't fit the mission for a variety of different reasons. We have the littoral combat ship in this, in this breathless desire to get to this artificial number like having 300, we could have 355 rowboats, okay? It wouldn't help us. Capability is the issue. So there is concern, and part of the reason I know that President Biden gave such a tight number is we're tired of wasting money. I've talked about the F-35 quite a bit and its per unit cost and all that goes into that. So rant aside, the question is, and I want to thank General Berger, by the way, when your comment about how you want to fund the future by by out of your own budget. Basically, find the savings to fund the future, okay? And that's not some sort of profound personal sacrifice. That's smart, okay? Because no matter what you're doing, there's no doubt that there's money in there that's waste, that's being wasted, that isn't being used properly. So yes, we could just give you another $30 billion, another 40, another 50, another 100, okay? The question is, what are you doing right now that you don't need to be doing? It's absolutely certain that there is stuff in there. And, and some of that, I know, is driven by us. The 355-ship number didn't come from you. It came from us. Not from me, but it came from, from, from the broader committee. So as you're looking at this budget and as we're you know, bashing away at you for everything that you're not funding, what are you doing in your department right now that you look at and you go, we don't need to do that. We, we could save money on that. Hmm. Open all three of you. That's good. I'll start off with... Uh, uh, um, Aegis ashore in places like Poland, Romania, and soon to be Guam. We've got sailors protecting dirt. It's not what we do. And so that's a mission. That, so those, that's an expenditure for the, for the Navy that I believe ought to be owned by another service, as an example. Um, uh, we're trying to decommission those 15 ships, sir, uh, akin to what, uh, uh, to what General Berger's doing. We are trying to fund modernization from the inside. As and let me drill down on one point on that. One of those cruisers that we're trying to decommission, it's incredibly expensive just to keep those things afloat, right? So we, you know, we sent a cruiser out just recently, as I understand it, got a little ways out and said, yeah, it's not seaworthy. We've got to send it back. So we're, it's costing us money to keep trying to use these things that are past their useful life. So the cruisers right now and the modernization are running 175 to 200 percent above estimated cost, hundreds of days delay. These ships were intended to have a 30-year service life or out to 35. Um, we are trying to, they're not easy decisions to make, and I accept the counter-argument that we should keep these ships based on Admiral Davidson's uh, comments, but at some point, we need to, we need to turn and uh, 
And Thank you. I've, I've taken more time than I should. I apologize. But for, you, 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 you get the point. I want to get, get, get back to other members. But we can find savings in here. And we're not doing our job if we just come in here and say, gosh, we need more money. We all need more money. You could go to HHS. You could go to Department of Education. You go, I doubt you'd find a single person in any one of those buildings who didn't say they need more money. We've we got to do better than that. Thank you. Uh, that is all the people we have lined up. I have said my piece as a closing thing. Mr. Rogers, do you have anything for the good of the order? I do not. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I want to thank all three of you. Uh, three hours. Uh, appreciate your, uh, in your stamina is the word I'm looking for, and your work. It's a you know, lot to do uh, within, within a limited budget, and I appreciate that efforts, and we'll definitely continue to work with you as we go through the rest of the process this year. Um, I'll just close by saying we, we have to pass some appropriations bill. We do not want a continuing resolution. We want to get your appropriations bill as close to October 1 as possible and get you an authorizing bill within that time frame as well, and we, we will do our best to get there. Uh, with that, we are adjourned. That'll do it on a Tuesday. Yeah, interesting, interesting stuff. Budgets, ships. And and what's most interesting is to me, you haven't learned whole you haven't heard a whole lot from the Commandant of the Marine Corps or the CNO about this budget. You have to be, they have to be pushed into saying that yeah this is a budget that hurts us um, so interesting I don't know, is that politics is that playing the political game I'm not sure sounds like it to me and then when you hear very pointed answers you're like wait a minute well I haven't I heard anything before but anyhow so uh, that'll do it on a Tuesday morning broadcasting live from Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. And uh, post-traumatic winning kicks off around here at about 2 o'clock. That would be 5 o'clock on the West Coast, 8 o'clock on the East Coast. So if you look at your watch, you could figure it out. Anyway, um, and I think I've headed for the Punch Bowl uh, where I will get a chance to pay my respects to my great uncle who was killed on the USS Halligan. His name is on the wall at the Punch Bowl. So looking forward to that. Um, you know, I'm going to have a, a little bit of free time tomorrow morning. So I thought the first place I should go is to pay my respects. So I'll do that. And then if I have any time, I'll head down to the Arizona Memorial and check that out. So excited about that. And I will report to you about that. So anyway, have a great uh, Tuesday. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio right here on the All Warrior Radio Network. Have a great day. Don't be afraid to change somebody's life. And uh, if I can help you in any way, shape, or form, help somebody, don't be afraid to let me know. On this Tuesday, I'm out.